Welcome everyone to the 45th of the COVID calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion about COVID-19 and face masks with Sharona Pearl and Rashawn Ray. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter. My handle is at US of Disaster. You can also hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. And please do suggest yourself if you'd like to be a guest. On Monday, I will talk to Megan Finn from the University of Washington and Ryan Ellis from Northeastern University about infrastructure, the internet, and the post office in the age of COVID-19. As of today, there are 4,516,360 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 4,413,597 cases yesterday. 1,432,045 of those are in the United States, up from 1,405,961 yesterday. There are now a total of 86,851 deaths in the United States reported from COVID-19, up from 85,194 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to those numbers, I've been reading a life story every day and I'd like to continue that now. This is an obituary that appeared in the New York Times. Jerzy Glazuski, Polish ace in a spitfire, dies at 97 by Nicholas Kulish. They were men without a country, flying combat missions against the same Nazi war machine that had overwhelmed their native Poland in the Blitzkrieg. Their uncommon valor during World War II made the Polish pilots fighting for the Allies into an example of determination in the face of adversity. Jerzy Glazuski, 97, flew 100 missions for the number 308 City of Krakow, Polish fighter squadron, according to Poland's Institute of National Remembrance. He was widely believed to have been the last surviving member of the Valiant Brotherhood of Exiles who fought with the Royal Air Force when he died on April 13 of COVID-19 in a nursing home in Manhattan. Jerzy Eligusz Glazuski, was born on November 19, 1922 in Warsaw. His father owned a lithographic printing company and died in a car accident when Jersey was six. His mother, Josefa, took over the business. He was 16 when the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939. He escaped Warsaw with his stepfather and was nearly killed in a strafing run by a German plane as they tried to join the remnants of the Polish army. As refugees, they lived in Bucharest and then in Tel Aviv. Mr. Glazuski served with the Allies in the Independent Carpathian Rifle Brigade in Egypt and on the front lines in Libya before traveling to Britain to train as a pilot. He returned to war-shattered Poland after the German surrender and enrolled at the Warsaw University of Technology's Faculty of Architecture, graduating in 1952. As an architect, he worked on the reconstruction of the Polish capital's badly damaged Old Town and designed several industrial projects around the country. He married Irina, known as Lenta Henisch, and they had a daughter, Clara Glazuska. In his later years, he taught at the Pratt Institute in New York and wrote his memoirs, which were published in three volumes in Polish and translated and released in English in a single volume, The Accidental Immigrant, published in 2007. In his memoir, 
Mr. Klasuski wrote about a stopover in Istanbul after fleeing the Gestapo in Bucharest. We sometimes pondered, he said, how serendipitous our lives as refugees have been since we've left home. We neither dwelled on the past nor anticipated the future. Okay, I'd like to introduce my guests today. Dr. Sharona Pearl is Associate Professor of Medical Ethics at Drexel University. She is a historian and theorist of the face and body, and her most recent book is Face On, Face Transplants and the Ethics of the Other. She publishes widely for a public audience, most recently in the Washington Post, which we will discuss today, and she invites you to follow her on Twitter at Sharona Pearl. Thanks. Rashawn Ray is David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is also an Associate Professor of Sociology and Executive, and Executive Director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland, College Park. Recently, Ray published the book, How Families Matter, Simply Complicated Intersections of Race, Gender, and Work with Pamela Bavoy Jackson, and another edition of Race and Ethnic Relations in the 21st Century. History, Theory, Institutions, and Policy. Sharona and Rashawn, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks Thank for having us, Scott. I'd like to remind you that you can get questions in and just put those, if you're watching on YouTube Live, you can get those questions in using the chat function and they will get to us, or you can put them on Twitter and just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. Some people like to email them directly, and that's fine too. You can email me directly throughout the conversation today, sgk23 at drexel.edu. So when I have these conversations, um, I've been starting by just finding out how things are going, where people are. So I'd like to start with that. Sharona, could I start with you? Where are you calling in from and how are things there? Uh, I'm in Philadelphia. We're right downtown. And... We're all doing fine, me and my husband and my three kids, but it's certainly a strange time to see a city feel so empty. And when did you start working from home? Well, as you know, Scott, Drexel is on a quarter system, so we were able to kind of coast towards the end of the winter quarter, and then immediately upon hearing that, classes were going to go online and that the exam period was going to go online. I left and came home. My kid's school actually closed down a bit earlier than some of the other schools. So those two things coincided as well. So we were all home together at the same time in mid-March. Rashawn, same question to you. Where are you calling from and how are things going there? Yeah, I'm right outside of Washington, DC. So I'm not far from where you all are. So I think we're in similar situations, even though I think Pennsylvania has done a much better job, at least as far as the numbers with handling this sort of thing in Philly than Maryland has and where I'm at. Um, I mean, my, you know, I think we've been home. I think my wife said this is our ninth week uh, today. Um, my wife is a healthcare provider, so I think she's really been keeping up with the numbers. I mean, so I mean, in our, in our household, that's always an interesting question to me because it's like professionally and then it's personally. So just, I mean, from a personal standpoint, I think we have a very different relative viewpoint of this pandemic. Um, just seeing what happens to her when she goes to work. Her, her, she's a nurse practitioner. She runs a clinic in the hardest hit 
uh, zip code in Prince George's County, which is, I think, one of the top three hardest hit zip codes in the state. So, I mean, just the, the things I hear from her and what she's going through, I think it's drastically different than everybody else. I mean, as far as uh, myself and our two boys, I mean, we're home, we're fine. They're Zooming classes. I'm Zooming stuff like this. And, um, you know, I think that the biggest issue we have is whether or not we have enough bandwidth when one of them is doing math or Spanish and I'm also doing something. But, you know, I think as long as my wife stays safe um, and healthy, I think we're fine. But I mean, definitely the area where, where we're in, at least where we work, um, is being is being hard hit. It's not the topic of our conversation today, but how can it, it's always the talk of topic of every conversation. Rashawn, if I could just follow up since you since you offered that, is has she had to quarantine at home? Have you had to do that kind of work at home? Yeah, I mean she basically quarant so so I mean the way that we do it in our house, um, I mean it's literally a daily process. So it's kind of been three waves. The first big wave um kind of happened even before things shut down, maybe like 10 days before when she started seeing just a huge uptick in patients and quote unquote, flu-like symptoms at the time. Um, and so that, that was a huge uptick. And she's the lead provider in the region. Um, so she was having to deal with a lot of things. So that went into overdrive really, really quickly for us. But she, I think in a span of like four weeks, she was probably off three days and she works 12 hour shifts. So she was gone like 14 hours during those days. That was when, when it first hit. Um, lines were out the door. Uh, people were extremely frustrated, people were anxious, people were scared. Um, and so walk-in clinics become a primary site. Then we went into wave two, which is what we call, um, the White House was saying that there were tests and there were no tests. So what that meant was when that transition happened, people were anxious because they thought that they could get tests, but there weren't any tests available. So her company went into, I think it took them a little while, but they went into a nice transition where they started to kind of triage patients and refer them out to places where they could get tested. Um, I think that ended up going pretty well, dealt with a PPP issue. And now the third wave is now that they have tests, it's a, it's a new wave. So um, every day she comes in the house, she, so she sleeps in a separate room. Um, she shares kind of a, a main common space or two with us. But the minute she comes in the house, shoes are at the door, clothes are either in the trash, immediately in, in the washing machine, immediately taking a shower. Um, doesn't spend time in places where uh, I sleep or the boys sleep. So most of the time they're sleeping in their own bed. <clears throat> um, or, you know, if, if they, if it's a, a special night, they get to sleep with, with dad. Um, but she's in another room. But I mean, we do share commonality. So I know how bad the day has been when she comes home and starts baking at 8.30 at night, uh, which has happened more than I would like. And so, you know, that's not good for my waistline. But um, I definitely eat whatever she cooks, and then I just I just try to listen. Thank you so much for sharing that that thumbnail sketch. And and when I hear those kinds of descriptions, um, first of all, I'm just I have so much gratitude for what your wife's doing. But then also uh, to hear that, and to hear other people talk about their uh, liberty being abridged because they uh, can't go to the football stadium or, or to get their uh, haircut. Uh, it's just a cognitive dissonance that I just can't, uh, I can't process it. And uh, I think we need to hear more about, about your wife and more about people who are at the, in the front lines and the essential workers along those lines. So um, maybe we'll circle back to that by the end of our conversation. We have a lot of things to cover today. I'm gonna to start, yep. uh, Sharona, with you. 
um, and your just wonderful piece in the Washington Post made by history uh, section now last week, I guess. Um, yeah. And I just want to give a such a great article. I hope people will look it up. And I just want to give a little quote from that. You said, we look at people to know them when we can't look at them. We feel we know and trust them less. And when we can't show our own faces to the world, we may feel we're hiding something. So what do we do at a time when we need to wear masks in public, but we also need to connect with one another while maintaining social distancing? So what moved you to write this? And I guess, you know, as you wrote in the piece, you use this as a way you give a really, a really rich, deep history of masking laws. So can I draw you out a little bit on that and give us some of that? I can't give it all, give us all of it, but something we can work with on that history. Yeah, so the interesting thing about all these narratives and debates about masking and the requirements to wear masks in public due to multiple emergency orders, which I obviously absolutely 100% support in the strongest possible terms, are that they're kind of an inversion of the historical tradition and trajectory, which were the anti-mask laws. And the first one, I believe, was in New York State in 1845. And those were a series of laws that were designed to prevent people from wearing masks in public, either that first one in New York State was around landlord-tenant disputes hmm. with the idea that it was to protect people who were trying to dispute with others. So if you kept your face covered, there was a notion that you would be more aggressive, you would be less accountable, people would not be able to identify you. And these laws have continued up all the way through to very, very, very recent times, partly in response to the growing ubiquity of CCTV and face surveillance in many parts of the world, and also around the idea that if people are congregating in public and riots or protests, then they need to show their faces in case they were to break the law. So what we're seeing now is this inversion where you're actually required to wear a mask in public. And of course, it's in complete consonance with larger concerns about public health, larger concerns about the safety of the masses. But it does cause us to really pause and reflect what these notions we held about privacy, security, identity were really connected to. And was it actually about being able to see people's faces or was it a variety of other long-held biases that I'm sure Rashawn will get to around what faces actually mean. Can you go back to this, this 19th century laws you're talking about in, in New York? You said 1845, so that's yeah. sort of also the height of kind of nativist anger and dispute in New York in those days. I mean, what were some of the conflicts that were swirling at that time that made the mask uh, a point of contention? Well, I think there in particular, they were pegged to uh, landlord-tenant debates, the rise of the tenements, and you see the growing kind of, um, what are they called, um, you know, when lots of people live together in unsafe environments, you know, slumlords and so on and so forth. So the interesting thing to me is that uh, in the mid-20th century, where many other states kind of enacted their anti-masking laws, they were actually designed to stop the activities of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. So the anti-masking laws then were around a particular institutional racist body that was using face covering as part of its ritual. So even though they were broad anti-masking rules, they were very specifically targeted to the Ku Klux Klan to stop them from wearing their hoods and face coverings. And those laws, that, can you give us a general sense of when those laws start to appear? Or, or? 
Yeah, I mean, so I have to say that I'm not an expert on anti-masking laws per se, although I have been become much more interested in them. Uh, and you would see some of those in sort of the 1930s, 40s, even the 1950s is when you're beginning to get those being passed. I see. Okay. Um, so, well, thank you for that. I'd like to, um, Rashawn, let me turn to you. And I guess the first thing I want to ask you about is sort of get a, an overview of some of your recent research. And you, you gave an interview on NPR last week, and you were there to talk about the Ahmaud Arbery case. Mm -hmm. You referenced there um, some of your broader research you've been doing, and I just want to give a little quote from something you said. You said, I think this is something that oftentimes people don't readily realize, and I think it's because of stereotypes that black men are the ones who are threatening to others. But black men actually at times are fearful for their own lives, just engaging in everyday normal activities such as exercising, even going to a restaurant or coffee shop or driving down the street. So just as that is a way into your work and the kinds of questions you've been asking, um, tell us a little bit more about it. And if you can connect that to this debate that we're having in the country right now about masks. Yeah, I mean, first I wanna say, I mean, I, I meant to say this earlier, thank you for having me on. Um, Sharona's piece was right on target. I mean, it, it made me think about how those uh, anti-mask type of policies and laws were put in place, as she mentioned, as it relates to the KKK. And so one of the big things that I always think about is who has the right to fully enact the First and Second Amendment <clears throat> at, at kind of all costs? Who has the ability to actually control public spaces while they are also controlling the gaze that people has the ability to put onto them? So right now, for example, in uh, North Carolina, there have been a series of protests it, you know the big one was at the side of the subway and there was a, a family walking across the street just having to be a black family just happened to be two lawyers one was a prosecutor one was a public defender and it kind of led to um an interaction there as people were, were interacting with on one hand people with guns and uh pipe wrenches that look like you know bazookas and then on the other hand uh, a family walking kids across the street in a stroller and I think that juxtaposition is something that I always think about with masks. And I kind of break it down this way and then talk specifically about the study that, that I talked about on NPR is I remember when I first started working at Brookings uh, for my sabbatical and uh, I take the train in from the suburbs and then ride my bike and try to get exercise in during the day. And when it got cold, I was like, oh, I still want to start, you know, I want to keep riding my bike. And um, I was like, well, you know, but when you ride your bike and it's like 45 degrees, I mean, it's hitting your face, it's, it's cold. And so I was like, okay, well, I think I'm gonna have to get a mask. And my wife was like, no, you can't do that. Like you, you can't get a mask or, you know, we gotta make sure it's like orange or pink or has something on it. it. It led to this whole conversation about the ways that I couldn't interact in public space. Um, and I just ended up not doing it. Like it just, it just became, I was just like, this is just too much, just forget it. And of course that links to today with you have a lot of black men um, who are thinking consciously in complex ways about what it means to wear a mask in public. Whereas Sharona laid out, what does it mean when people can't see your face, when people can't see your mouth moving? I've been thinking about my wife as a healthcare provider that they're now starting to make new masks where um, you can actually see a person's mouth moving because for people who are, who are in hospitals, just seeing someone smile at you, um, but even people who are hearing impaired, having the ability to read lips. I mean, it's a host of things we think about with masks. And so how I got to this point 
when I was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation scholar in Berkeley, uh, the big research project I was working on was looking at physical activity and obesity. And I was really concerned with the way that public spaces kind of guide people's behaviors. And lo, lo and behold, of course, as you all know, race and place are highly correlated with one another. And the neighborhood resources that people are provided are highly distinct based on those neighborhoods. So I went around to a series of different neighborhoods. I did ethnographic observations, interviews. Um, I did focus groups. And then I did a large study of about 500 middle-class blacks and whites, because that's really where I seen the gap. And what I was concerned with is where we don't see uh, middle-class blacks enga engaging in physical activity similar to middle-class whites. And what I found was that on one hand, it was an interesting finding that middle-class black men were actually more physically active than all other groups, more physically active than white men, white women, and black women, except for in predominantly whites neighborhoods. And it led me to exploring why we see that. It led to the work that I now do on policing from this health project, which is that black men were criminalized in these spaces. Their blackness often became weaponized, meaning that even if they didn't have a weapon, even if they weren't attacking anyone, just their being, their physical bodies, they were dehumanized in a sense where it was perceived that they could enact physical harm on someone else. And so even when they weren't moving in a particular way, if just simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or oftentimes the right place at the right time, like they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do, their physical bodies were not supposed to be there, it could lead to a deleterious outcome. And of course, the Ahmaud Arbery situation is one of the most egregious examples. I think that harkens back to how people think about what happened with Trayvon Martin as well, um, Jonathan Farrell and others. But the big thing is the way that black men respond to this. So black men go through what we call in sociology a signaling process, where they try to signal that they belong. They try to signal their social class, try to signal their, their social status. So they do things like wear an alumni t-shirt. They, they run in well-lit areas. They run in places where other people are. They always have an ID on them. They wave and smile at neighbors. I mean, like, who does that? Like, I mean, like, running is difficult enough to, to have to all of a sudden do that around other people and be running through people. But they do that so that there's a witness if something happens, which becomes important, but also to try to deflect from the stereotypes they know to exist about their own bodies. When you layer that up with a mask, I mean, it becomes stereotypes on, on, on steroids, essentially, and stereotypes on steroids where, where now people's perceptions of you are heightened in ways that we already know exist, because Black men know that People think that they're more, that they're, you know, stronger, that they are more prone to criminality, that they are um, emotionally unstable. You put all these factors together with a mask, and now all of a sudden you're telling me to walk into a store and buy something. And it's led to, of course, as we know, things like black men being asked to leave stores, being asked to remove their mask. I mean, this is crazy. Like during a pandemic, these are activities where people should be praised for being responsible for protecting themselves and protecting other people. But when certain people do it, it's the exact opposite. Right, and that really does tie into this historical notion that people who are covering their faces have something to hide. So when you compound that with a body that was always already wrong, right? The black body, the black male body in particular, is always already read as angry, always already read as violent. In the history of the United States, always already read as not, not having the right to occupy space, let alone exercise First and Second Amendment rights, right? Then the mask, while, you know, a person of privilege perceives this as a mode of protection, 
and almost a service. Look what I'm doing for everybody else by wearing this mask. The always already wrong body puts that on and then the signaling that occurs, even though it's absolutely the right thing to do and not just a right, but a requirement, um, even more compounds all of these historical biases and current biases. So you're wrapping up these two sets of assumptions that people with privilege allow to go unexamined around who it is we believe is meritorious, what we tie into the face and the transparent face and which bodies get to be. Rona, would you, have you seen something similar with um, the history of uh, Muslim women in the United States or in other parts of the world who are, just as you and Rashawn are describing it, there's sort of already a sense in which um, this is a person who's either threatening because of who they are, their beliefs are, they've already got this sort of a body where it shouldn't be as you describe it. And then there's already the head covering in that instance with, with Muslim women, a similar kind of process there? Well, so one of the things I've been wondering about, and I'm working on this a little bit right now with a colleague, Noor Halubi, who is at um, the University of Leeds, is the same kind of reckoning that we're having, or we ought to be having, spread across this country, but all the things that actually turns out are possible, all the accommodations that we can make for people with disabilities, all the flexibilities that we can for working from home, right? Turns out it actually was doable. All it took was the non-marginalized people to need it. Is there a similar way in which all these biases that we have against people covering their faces can also be reckoned with? So we have all these absurd ironies like in Quebec and in France where they have these laws against covering your face right. that are broad, but really are pegged towards Muslim women who wear the veil. They would enter a hospital and what? They have to take off their niqab, they have to remove their hijab in a hospital space where everybody is wearing masks, that was always true, right? But now are we in a moment where we can say, wait a second, all of these things that we said were problematic about covering your face in public, which we said were general and we said were about security, maybe they really were just about a certain form of Islamophobia. Can we have that conversation? Mm -hmm. Rashawn, are you seeing the, you're telling us this example, you were giving us a minute ago from North Carolina, are you seeing other cases where the the use or the, the lack of use of the, of the face mask is sort of being weaponized now by people who have a sort of broader political agenda? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, and I think law enforcement is one of the places where we really see it. And I mean, it's just disheartening because, you know, the, at least the research I do, I knew that it was coming. I mean, it, it was a reprieve a bit, and then we started to see it, see, see it heightened. So in New York City, for example, um, a study just came out showing that about 80% of people who were given summons and arrested for social distance violations were either black or Latino. And we know that there were people out in Central Park who were mostly white and other places who were out. They weren't practicing social distancing. They didn't have on masks. Um, and instead, police officers went around and handed them masks and had conversations with them. And for black and Latino residents of the city, that, that wasn't the case at all. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think we've seen it weaponized and it's, it's been used. And I think it's been, it's another form of the way that people use it to increase, to increase surveillance. And I think it's, it's, it's right in line with the laws that's been coming out over the past decade that now people are trying to repeal around the way people wear their hair. So as Sharona was talking about people's head gabars and, and other sorts of things, well, all of a sudden, People are doing the same thing with, with hairstyles, right? From the military to corporate America to other places, to, to government agencies. 
And so using a mask, again, it's, 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 it's always about, and I love how Sharona put this, which was, you know, just being in a body that shouldn't be in a place, right? That, that, is, that is the body. It's not about the place, because no matter what the place is, that body becomes out of place. Right. And the mask is just another form of doing that. If you're in the right type of body, it kind of doesn't matter what you do. You can have on a mask and you get applauded for it, and then you don't have on a mask, and guess what? You get applauded for that too. So you have on a mask, it's like, thank you for taking care of people. You don't have on a mask, and it's like, that's good. You can exert your rights. Like, it's, it's interesting how no matter what the scenario is, what the social interaction is, if you're in the right body, oftentimes there is going to be spun in a way that you're correct, and if you're in the wrong body, it's going to be spun as if you're not. It, you, you know, you make it, you put that so beautifully, Rashawn, and it harkens as well to all these narratives as who counts as excusable, right? Who counts as a boy, right? Trayvon Martin is treated as a man and shot in the back, but some 34-year-old, we can think of many examples of 34-year-old white men who are excused because they are young mm -hmm. right? and foolish. Right. So what is the bandwidth of forgivability? What is the bandwidth mm. of latitude? And sure, everybody might eventually reach the end of that. But who's already started in violation from day one? Right. And this is taking us a little far afield about the mask per se. But it's interesting to think about how this thing around which there is emerging consensus and at the same time pushback politically um, becomes so exemplary of these broad trends of discrimination and bias in our society. And if that's one of the messages of this horrible pandemic, it's the, the cracks that were there have become craters, right? The ways in which our system has broken has become so exploded. And each one of these symbols really is just tied to more of the same. The, you know, sorry, I, I gotta, I'm gonna have to acquire the, the, cra the cracks to craters thing. That was amazing. I will always attribute, attribute you, but that is a great way to think about it, that there were cracks in our system in a host of ways. And now all of a sudden, I mean, they, they have become craters because of COVID-19. That is, yeah, that's good. Well, I liked your thing. What was it? Something on steroids? You said that was oh. really good, but I have to remember. Yeah, what come back to me. I, don't know. Oh, I might have just been saying that now we have like stereotypes on steroids. Yeah. Stereotypes on we'll steroids. Have the, we'll so have good. the transcript. Don't worry. This transcript, <laughs> I can already tell, is going to be very much in demand. You both are. I mean, the eloquence that you're bringing to this is important because we have to talk clearly about disasters, not as some things that happen to us from outside, but as processes that reveal social cracks, as you said, of craters that are already pre-existing. And yet they do open opportunities. And I wanted to turn to this for a second because um, I'm thinking about, you know, what you're both describing and Rashawn, the example you gave there, I'm imagining a young person, a young African-American man who basically as he moves through New York City, has to, if he sees the police, he has to put the mask on, but he has to also be aware that by having the mask on, he's putting himself at risk the minute he's not with the police, but maybe both. And I'm thinking about my own experience as a white middle-aged man in America, and I would have never thought of this term, but I have mask privilege, right? I bought some masks back in January, and they have, uh, it's like skull mask, you know, with teeth. Back when all this seemed so abstract to me and impossible, it was, I didn't buy them as a joke, but I didn't put much thought into it. I just bought what I could buy. And 
I never gave a second thought that anybody would say anything to me if I wore that or not. It just never occurred to me. And that reveals a, a sort of set of social orders in place around disaster. That means I can walk through this disaster with an enormous amount of privileges, which would be basically, I wouldn't even be conscious of them unless we were having these kinds of, these kinds of conversations. I'm gonna leave that there for a second. turn to the possibility of this moment because I do think it's important to remember we are all social distancing and that's an enormous pro-social act we have millions of people around the world taking action I reminded my kids of this the other day this is why we're at home we're taking action to protect ourselves but also to protect lots of people we will never meet that's impressive I think but how do we build on that to then address some of these kinds of deeper social um, pathologies that you're, that you're both talking about? Rashawn, I'm gonna start with you. Is there something we can do in the pro-social in this moment that we can somehow transfer to address those other problems that you've been talking about? It's racism, but it's taking the form of, of, the, of the racism of the mask. Or am I being too optimistic here? No, I, no I, don't, I don't think so at all. You know, I mean, there, there were a couple of thoughts that come to mind. The first thing was when you were talking about your mask, I was thinking about one of the ways that um, inequality on one hand and privilege on the other hand play out. And I always like to think about it is, while one group of people are able to go through life and kind of nonchalantly make decisions, another group is spending mental minutes thinking about whether or not they, was, whether or not they were discriminated against and trying to prevent discrimination. So I've spoken to a lot of black men. I've spoken to a lot of white men similar to you or just white families that are like, oh yeah, we just bought whatever was available, something fun or something scary. And then I talked to a lot of black men or women who were purchasing things for their family. And they were saying, well, you know, we had to think consciously about the colors. So, you know, we had to think about the colors or, you know, we took um, some of our daughter's old t-shirts that were colorful and we put that together. Or we decided to draw on the mask and draw a smiley face on the mask so that people knew that they were smiling. I mean, just all of these sort of things. And I, I think I reflect on, I remember being in grad school in Indiana and um, there was a, a PhD student in political science. He was brilliant. And um, he ended up not finishing, I think partly because of some of the things we're, we're talking about, just what, just the level of criminalization mm. that black people experience in a place like Bloomington. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's extremely troubling. And I remember we were having dinner at this restaurant and he says, we were talking about this sort of thing, right? And he says, yeah, he said, see, this is why I took my driver's license picture in a suit and tie so that, you know, when I'm pulled over, you know, the police are gonna see that I have on a tie. And I was like, what? I was like, dude, you have on a t-shirt and a ball cap. Like the copies are gonna see your suit and tie on your license. And even if they do, it's not gonna make a difference. But I think that speaks to the level by which black men are trying to do that. So to your question, as a lot of us have the privilege to engage in social distancing, because outside of my wife, I mean, my kids and I, we do, right? We have the, the, the devices we need. We have the bandwidth that we need. You know, they go to a school where they do three or four Zoom classes a day and they're still learning. Whereas in other parts like DC, DC just closed three weeks early because kids weren't keeping up. Like they, they just couldn't do it because either their parents were 
these new essential frontline workers or they didn't have the technology or they didn't have the broadband. I mean, all these sort of issues. So the way I think about social distancing is to highlight, particularly I think for our kids, what I really try to do is to say, let's talk about why you have the privilege to stay inside right now. Why you have the privilege to be on this Zoom. Why you have the privilege to go in your backyard. And then let's talk about all the reasons why other people don't. And then I want to hear from you on what you think should be done about it. And you know the great thing about kids is, at least my kids' ages, they're eight and nine, don't have really any limitations on how they think about the world yet. I'm trying to preserve that as long as possible. So they come up with all kind of amazing ideas. You know, like they were like, well, daddy, you know, why can't we just go to a company like Amazon? They ship stuff to everybody and just have them ship something to every single kid. And, you know, and then the other one's like, yeah, I mean, because Jeff Bezos, I mean, he's like, worth like a bazillion guilt, you know, trillion dollars. I mean, just, and so it's interesting hearing these kids say this kind of stuff. But I think the point is, for the future, is I think kids now who are going through this pandemic, hopefully, are gonna have a very different view of what's possible, how they deal with inequality, and they're trying to make sure that everyone has an equitable shot at life, right? Because right now the digital divide is increasing, um, people can't get healthcare, other people can. And I think helping kids to make sense of that is something that we can do in the house. It's, you know, it's interesting because it's something we've been reflecting a lot as well. My kids are 10, eight and six. And one of the things about isolating is that we're also really isolated, right? Because, and we all know already that we have the privilege to isolate, the financial privilege, the housing security, the access to the goods that we need, the bandwidth, all the things that you're talking about. But there's a way in which really isolates us from the terror and the rage and the desperation, even though we are all struggling emotionally and I'm not in any way wanting to belittle the challenges that people who are isolating are facing, even those with huge privilege. So we've been trying also to have these conversations with our kids about what we're isolated from right now while being in our house. What are we not seeing, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean when, okay, our school shut down and that meant that my kids would come home and then we would, they would have food at night. They had a safe place to work. They have a bedroom. They have you know, room in the, ha like the, the insecurities that so many kids are facing in the Philadelphia region, certainly, right? Not just food insecurity, not just housing insecurity. They have responsibilities. They have to deal with families. They are no longer sheltered for a certain amount of time every day from real struggles in their lives. And it's really hard to communicate that, right? And then the thing we've been balancing on now, I know, Scott, we're really far afield is, you know, how at the same time do we have these conversations with our kids and also leave space for them to express their fear and frustration and sadness and mourning? I don't want to step on anybody's trauma, including, you know, some of the very real things that they're experiencing. But isolation is in and of itself a kind of privilege, right? Yeah, and I, nothing's far afield here. I mean, I, I think this is all I, this is all in the discussion. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, in a sense to, to think about the mask in a slightly different way, it's another way of thinking about protection and and risk perception and protection and distance. And we're all struggling with that right now. Um, we're all struggling with our own sort of comfort levels for ourselves, for our families, for our communities and struggling with inadequate information, inconsistent information, and, you know, trying to do the best we can. And then if you try to model that for children or for your students or for your neighbors, 
It's an enormously complicated moment along, along those lines. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking to Sharona Pearl and Rashawn Reagan. You can get your questions in to the YouTube live chat. And you can also get questions in using Twitter, or you can email me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu. And please do be sure to get your questions in. Sharona, I want to um, come back to you. Rashawn mentioned um, surveillance a minute ago, and I want to um, ask you a little bit about that. I know it's one of your real areas of, of expertise. So what's the situation now with some large percentage of the population in, pl in public wearing masks, and then there's the sort of law enforcement prerogative of facial recognition? I guess this is most acute in London, but I'm assuming also in other American cities. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? Yeah, so that's obviously one of the things that I've become really interested in in the context of surveillance, face recognition, and so on and so forth. So one of the dirty secrets about CCTV and surveillance software is that it's not great, right? Face recognition software is super good at matching you up to you. That's why your iPhone works, because it has a set of an N of one. It's getting better, but because it's a machine learning system, whatever system, whatever set you start with really does determine the course of things. And we all know about the biases. So if your starting system is Fortune 500 CEOs, you're going to have a massive amount of false positives for both women and people of color, right? Um, and we have seen this play out there. It's one of those cases where the algorithms are getting better. So the face recognition software is catching up and getting better but that's why they bring in people because a career criminals and people who know their way around surveillance cameras know how to cover their faces so they that really does a very good job of uh, evading the software but you have these super recognizers these people are really good at in theory matching individual features so an eye to an eye so unless you're actually completely swathed um, you you know, limited masking isn't going to do a huge amount. But also, I think that for the purposes of most of the cameras, these kind of face masks um, don't massively limit the capabilities of a lot of the software. I do think we're seeing less crime committed in general because people are out and about a lot less. So we're, it's too soon to actually be able to evaluate the effects of that. But um, I would love to see, you know, one of the differences between, say, uh, an American audience and a British audience is that a British audience is really comfortable with trading privacy for security. London has 50% of the world's CCTV cameras, as far as we know. China kind of throws a wrench into that. Americans probably would never consent to having government cameras. A number of cities have actually banned the use of face recognition software, Somerville, San Francisco. I mean, whether they're the representative of <laughs> the United States, we can have a discussion. But Americans are perfectly happy with Ring and other kinds of, you know, private surveillance companies coming in. Sure. If you think that they're earning their money by selling doorbells, I, <laughs> right. you know, so um, how the kind of public private nature of these surveillance mechanisms plays out will be something that we'll see. Are police going to be struggling with, you know, identifying who rang your door when they requisition your ring footage because there's mm. a mask? I don't think so. Are you keeping tabs on the tech conversations on, on the side? Because I can imagine that part of what they may be thinking about is, um, you know, the massive social experiment that they're allowed to do with some of these, you know, uh, the work that they're doing on crowds. Now it's going, it's changing, and we'll be masking and unmasking. If, if what I'm reading is true, and I have no reason to believe it isn't, we're going to be masking and unmasking now until there's a vaccine, and even beyond that, for right. vulnerable populations. 
how is that going down in the tech community that's sort of enthusiastic well, I think about people this. are watchfully waiting, right? Mm. So one of the one of the things that actually even before all this started, I had a conversation with an artist and developer named Danielle Baskin. And one of the things that she'd started working on is a mask that actually prints your own face on it. Hmm. Right. So can you actually order a mask that looks exactly like you? And she had a wait list of like 2000 people in the first instance. Everybody was really excited about this. And then she started thinking about the capabilities of using this in the other direction to befuddle right, to befuddle the face recognition software, because that would be very confusing if you had half of one face and half of oh, another. I see. Um, that would actually be an effective wrench in the works. So, so could see, uh, uh, like so a, jam, a jamming mechanism. I also thought of it as kind mm. of real life uh, Snapchat face filter, right? Like all these people have all these experiments of trying on other people's faces. Mm -hmm. You actually could in, in real life, not just online. Yeah. Let me, um, Rashawn, you, you were starting out earlier, you talked about the First and the Second Amendment um, as sort of fundamental places you want to start these conversations. And I wanted to add, I wanted to bring that to something that's been in the news and listeners will be familiar with. I think it was yesterday. But we've been having these protests at state houses um, among um, groups of people who organize um, and it's still not clear exactly if they're centrally organized or if these are very organic, but basically they're demanding the end of shelter in place. They're demanding um, restrictions, uh, demanding they want things open. Um, and the Michigan legislature has recessed in part because this uh, group of uh, advocates against sheltering and against masking had said, we're gonna be at the state house and we're gonna be armed and they are wearing masks, but they're not N95 masks, they're their own masks that, that they wear, which are, and sometimes they have camouflage or their patriotic symbols or whatever they may be. So these are masked white men with guns at state capitol buildings menacing lawmakers. How do you filter that through a discussion about First and Second Amendment rights for African-Americans? I mean, I think that the simple question is, could African-Americans mount a protest like that? But I don't think that's as interesting as the broader question of why are they allowed to do that? And what does that tell us about the way that these issues are presenting us, presenting to us right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was, flabbergasted that it literally shut down government meetings and you know it's, it's been a lot of things going on with that like in fact um i was on cbs this morning talking about this exact issue because there, there are a series of things i'm thinking about so i'll try to go through them. so give me a second because yeah it's, take it's, your time it's so on my on my mind the first big thing is that so because of the way they enact their first and second amendment rights it actually infringes on the rights of others so what I really think about is the way that the enactment, the way some people have the privilege to fully enact the First and Second Amendment actually limits other people's freedom to move through space. We've seen this in Michigan, we've seen it in Wisconsin, we see it in North Carolina. I mean, the list could go on and on. The other thing that I think is important for people to note, and Sharona knows this very well, is that, I mean, protesters, particularly extremists on the right or the left, um, typically cover their face, right? I mean, we see this with Antifa on the left. I mean, we see this with right-wing right extremists on the right. 
But what is key is really what the statistics show. And like, I've been doing a lot of work on hate crimes because now I do work on policing. So of course I have to think about surveillance technology. I have to think about hate and all these sort of things that I never really thought that my research would go in this direction, but you just follow where the work goes. And one thing that I know is that hate crimes are increasing. Hate groups are increasing. I mean, of course, over the past couple of months, we've seen a huge uptick in anti-Asian sentiment because of, I think, the way that Trump frames this as uh, a Chinese virus or the Chinese flu and all the different ways he crosses out things up on the podium during his uh, daily press conferences. And that's highly problematic and it emboldens these people to act. And the big thing statistically is that we know hate crimes have increased about 20% over the past decade or two. We also know that when it comes to domestic terrorist acts, overwhelmingly these acts are committed by right-wing extremists and overwhelmingly the individuals who do this are white nationalists and white supremacists. So we have to really, really think about that. So if people just enacting their first and second amendment right, it's not that simple. Instead, what you see are things like them walking around with dolls, black dolls hang, hanging by a noose, walking around with slogans that um, Nazis would have at concentration camps in Germany during World War II. So we see the ways that these sort of things are enacted. We see the way this plays out at the Son of Sam statue at University of North Carolina, for example. That's not real detached from what we've seen over the weekend, uh, over last weekend in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, right down the street. So it's important for us to, to really contextualize this. And to, your, to, to one of your questions, I think is the, is the main point though, is that people should really know the answer to this, but it becomes kind of, as my grandfather was, used to say, the, cot, you know, the, the pot calling the kettle black, which is, I always think, imagine if all those people at the state house were black. Like imagine if they were Muslim. A lot of people can't even imagine it because it wouldn't even happen. Even though in Michigan it was fascinating because there were a group of um, kind of black militia group, pe pe people who were part of this black militia group who escorted a black state senator or state, state delegate to the courthouse. So, I mean, you have all these things kind of playing out there. But I think at the end result, we really have to think about the ways that these groups are on the fringe. They use these moments to recruit. They use these moments to be visible, and they use these moments to be racist by enacting the First and Second Amendment. And you know, I always think about it like this, like America, unfortunately, is so racist that when people protest racism, people think you're protesting America. Like that, that's just how racist America is. It's like, okay, I actually wanna kneel because people are getting killed by the police. No, you're, you're, you're the one who shouldn't be enacting your First Amendment right, right? You're the one who shouldn't be able to do that. And then the minute black people bear arms, like in the 2016 election, where there were a group of, um, I think they were kind of part of the New Black Panther Party in Ohio, the, the, the city of Cleveland actually changed the laws during the 2016 election so they could not bear arms. And this is important because in California, this happened in the 60s and 70s. Of course, people know Ronald Reagan as a pro-gun president. But he was not a pro-gun governor. In fact, he was completely against it. You all know this, being historians, is that one of the reasons why California has really stringent gun laws is because the Black Panther started taking over government buildings. And Ronald Reagan, who was, who was governor at the time, restricted all of that away. So people have to understand this history to kind of understand that the First and Second Amendment means drastically different things based on your race, your gender, your sexual orientation your ability and oftentimes if you have these privileged statuses it oftentimes gives you the benefit of the doubt to enact it and 
also the fact that we believe them. So like when these people are saying, no, we weren't being racist. No, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna use that pipe wrench on that black family I walked up to. We believe them. Instead of saying, uh, the statistics suggest that three out of four times you would have done something to hurt them. And so it's interesting who gets the benefit of the doubt as well and who's instantly vilified and criminalized. Right, it comes back to that same idea. If your body is already wrong, right? If it already does not ever have the right to be there, yep. and then the kind of latitude that that body is given is already at the end of the run because it was already wrong, then even though that statute or that amendment exists, you don't get to access it. Yep. Can, can we stay with this for a minute though? Because as I was, as we were talking about earlier, finding the opportunities, and I'm a little uncomfortable with that word, but I think we have to use it here. The political opportunities in this moment, when these injustices are so clear and in front of us, they do require organization, solidarity, and action. But I feel like many people don't know how to act. And in part because we've been told, and this is where you get the crossover effect, we've been told we shouldn't be gathering right. in groups, even with masks in some states. It's just not a good idea right now. So do we, do we mount a counter protest? Do we go to that state house and hold up signs protesting what's going on? I mean, what is the right channel? And if it's just, well, let's elect a Democratic president, I find that to be a little bit, that's cold soup. I mean, that's not going to be good enough. We need more direct channels for confrontation of what we're seeing around these issues. But I'm a little bit of a, at a loss of how to act in part because of the nature of this disaster. I don't know if either of you feels that that same way or has any thoughts on what people can do, again, to capture this pro-social moment, taking positive steps to make the world that we want to see out of this moment, rather than just surrendering the Michigan State House to the, to the right-wing militia. Well, I, I want to pause and reflect on the really beautiful insight that you just had, Scott, which is that so many of our organizing principles are based on a notion of publicity, as in publicness, right? And so many of the ways in which we envision solidarity, allyship, collective action involve being together in public. And that is no longer possible, except insofar as it becomes a protest of the kinds of pro-social and generous activities that we all want to support, right? So how do we negotiate that? How do we figure out how to be together and be in public and be allies and lift up the people who have always been marginalized and are even more so now suffering the effects without actually being together? Mm -hmm. It's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, I had three thoughts as you were talking. The first thing was what you said earlier about cognitive dissonance. You know, I, th I think one thing that I think both of you know, and like studying attitudes, I mean, I primarily specialize in social psychology. So I really think about how you take one social interaction, like protesting on a state house, and how people have drastically different interpretations of that. And, and I do think that the media, of course, drives a lot of this. You know, one thing I think that's surprising to people on the left who are liberals and progressives is how many people watch Fox News. Um, and of course, there's a, a fantastic media bias chart that you all have probably seen that I think is great, that kind of shows there's a square that where you should get your objective information, then there's like analysis where it's slanted a little bit, and then it's the fringe. And Fox News is so far outside of those 
um, normative objective boxes, but they have figured out how to really drive narratives and, and it's convincing. You know, one thing that I do, I watch all of the channels and I'm like, wow, that was, that was good. Like that, they were full of crap, but that, that was good. Like if, if I didn't know better, that would really convince me. So I think about what can we do? And it goes back to the question you said, what can we do in this moment? One thing that I developed over the past few years, just giving a lot of lectures, doing a lot of implicit bias trainings with police officers and federal government and military, I mean, which are very difficult spaces to go into and definitely difficult, as Sharona would say, for my physical body to go into, um, is that I developed this racial equity framework. And I talk about that there are three stages. The first is people become racial equity learners. Pretty much what people are doing now, they are listening to us as we're, we're deemed experts and they are learning about a, an important topic and how it relates to other things. Second two points are really critical though. And you know, Scott, this is really where you're trying to push us to, is first is to be what I call a racial equity advocate. And I wanna juxtapose and disentangle the differences between allyship and advocacy. An ally is a person who is supportive of what someone else is doing. But oftentimes they're very reactionary. Um, they might do something like wear a pin, you know, like when I'm supporting uh, equal rights, whether it be for marriage equality or against sexual assault, you know, I might wear a pin or some sort of ribbon once a year to, with the color white or purple to kind of support that. But I'm silent, right? Unless people know what it is, they don't really know that's going on. And so oftentimes, as my grandfather would say, he served 21 years in the military, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, served in two wars. And he taught me from birth is that my silence is my acceptance. So what happens when you're an ally Oftentimes you can be silent and you're most silent at times when you should speak up the most. And that's around people oftentimes who you love and care about the most. So the way I think about it, if you can speak up and speak out against your bigoted uncle, your racist grandma, you know, your sexist partner and spouse, like if, if you can speak up against them, you can speak up against anybody. Because the way I like to think about it, an advocate is a person who speaks up for people who are in a different group than you, especially when they're not present. Because right now, all of us are social distancing, for the most part, with people who look exactly like us. Having conversations about COVID-19, having conversations about masks, having conversations about protests. And unless we speak up and speak out, one thing I know is that Shirley Chisholm said that um, people are sitting at a table and our group is on the menu and someone is eating us for lunch. So we have to bring a folding chair. Right now, we can't bring a folding chair to someone else's table. So we need people at those tables to speak up. And, and I, I really realized this when I was teaching at the University of Mannheim in Germany. I had the opportunity to do this exchange program while I was teaching in Europe. It was a great experience. My wife and I had just got married. It was great for like a young couple because we couldn't talk to anybody but, but ourselves. So it really solidified our relationship. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but part of that was... Um, I noticed the way that Germans talked about Turks. Like, you know, people from Turkey is the largest minority group in Germany. And we were Americans. I mean, we were Americans first and we were black Americans. And it was fascinating to me because it was the first time in my life where my American identity was as salient as it was. It was basically the first time in my life. And I was almost 30 at that point where people referred to me as American. It had never happened before in my life. It was a fascinating experience. I was like, oh, this must be how white people feel every day. Like people like call you American. I'm like, yeah, that's what I am. Like I am. But it was interesting that that had never happened to me before. And that happens to people with marginalized statuses. But what I noticed sitting at dinner tables with them 
is the way they talked about Turks. Oh, you got to watch them. You, you know, watch that neighborhood. Don't, don't go over there after dark. You know, oh, you, you want to go to that? Don't, don't go to that restaurant. It's another restaurant on the other side of town. And my wife and I started noticing, we were like, there's nothing wrong with these neighborhoods. So until we decided to speak up and speak out at those tables, because there were no Turkish people at those tables, that's what we had to do. And then the next step is to be what I call racial equity brokers. These are people who then started to think consciously about the rules, regulations, and laws that operate where they are. Their neighborhood HOAs, do you have some sort of racist law on, the, on your HOA? A lot of people do, they just don't know. Like old things about who you shouldn't rent or sell your property to, who shouldn't be allowed to come in there, that gives then people when they do enact out racism, it gives me, them the ability to rely on the law. Just like we seen with Ahmaud Arbery, where, where, the, the, where the McMichaels were able to say, no, I was standing my ground and I was enacting the citizen's arrest. Well, we know who has the ability to do that. Black people don't have the ability to do that. And that's bear that out. That when you have a black um, victim and a white perpetrator, they're more likely to be found not guilty. But when it's the reverse, the person who committed the crime or who was trying to defend themselves is more likely to be found guilty. And so I think that there is a process we can get on. And similar to how I think that sexism really deals, really, really is about men dealing with themselves and how they think about women. I think racism is about white people dealing with themselves and how they view black people and other minorities. And uh, thank you. That was really moving. And one of the things that I'm really struck with is your distinction between allyship and, you know, advocacy, because the ally has the ability to remain silent, right? That the privilege of choosing to speak up or not. And then the, the process by which folks with privilege, let's say a white person like me, must always be going through is identifying those moments of, actually, I have this choice. Who doesn't have this choice? Who's not at this table? And if they were at this table, would not have the ability to remain silent. And who pays for those, these comments and choices with their actual literal lives every single day, right? or with the, the sheer exhaustion of having to think about humming classical music when you're buying something in a store so that you can signal and prime and like all of those kind of coping mechanisms and then the cumulative like historical trauma and exhaustion of it and then make the move and say, well, I have the opportunity to stay silent, but I actually don't have the right to. Mm. We're Thank you for that. We're up on time. We have traveled some distance in this conversation, and I'm, I'm so happy that we have and the ground that we've covered. I have one more question, just a quick one for each of you, because I know both of you, and this is kind of the wonky question for all the researchers listening, but there are a lot of them uh, listening, and you're both master researchers and innovative in your, in your methodologies. Sharona, to you first, how is this pandemic changing the way you do your research or the way you're thinking about research design at this time? So the non-wonky answer to that is that <laughs> public writing in bite-sized chunks has been a really good way for me to deal with my own rage and terror. Mm -hmm. So I find myself turning to what has always been a great source of pleasure for me and attempting to do more of it. But the big picture question that you're asking around how can we even think about research in this context? I don't have an answer to the experimental or research design piece, but I want to reiterate what I said earlier, which is that it has become so blindingly clear to me how important the humanities are in this moment. 
it has become so clear to me that we must be valuing the narratives of history. We must be valuing the ability to make sense of language and words. And obviously the scientific approaches are incredibly key, but I really do feel like we need to be, instead of slashing humanistic approaches, just doubling down on really valorizing that part of our intellectual life and research to create or sustain the better version of the world than the one we have now. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, <clears throat> we need social sciences and the humanities more now than ever before. And to Sharona's point, I'm, I'm extremely worried and troubled at the, the cuts that I'm seeing across the country to the humanities and the social sciences, and which obviously have a lot of overlap, like, like this conversation. So that's the first thing. I mean, I, I think when it comes to, to work, Similar to Sharona, I mean that the public work helps me get through it. It's therapeutic, actually, for me. Um, and it's probably similar to Sharona. I can do it quickly because I have a lot of this stuff in my head. I'm like, okay, I just need to write a thousand words. Yeah, I can do that in a couple of hours and then revise it and do that. It doesn't have to take a long time. So I, I do think that's important. <clears throat> I mean, I, you know, of course, the day-to-day -day larger projects. I mean, we had this large cyberbullying project. So, you know, I'm the director of the lab for applied social science research. We've been doing a lot of innovative work with virtual reality and we were planning this big launch now that we collect all these data with police officers in stealth mode where, yeah. I mean, I could get into all that drama. But the point is that, of course, that was halted. The cyberbullying project that we were doing with virtual reality to teach students how to really be advocates and to speak up for other people, well, that got halted. I mean, who's gonna let their kid put on virtual reality goggles? That's not gonna happen. So we're now in the process after I kind of let the people in my lab just be for a bit. You know, I just let them be. And I started noticing that there were different things. While probably similar to all of us, I mean, like, like right now, I mean, my kids are doing something. I don't know what they're doing. Like my youngest kid is ready to watch Scooby-Doo because it came out today. That's what we do. So he's like walking by the door, like waiting on that. But I say all that to say, like, life is lively. But if you're lonely and you're by yourself, and you know, Scott, there, there's, a, a, you know, someone great who I think you would like talking to is one of my colleagues, Dr. Long Doan at Indiana. I mean, at, well, he got his PhD at Indiana. He's in Maryland with me now, but he has this fascinating study with some other colleagues, Liana Sayer and Gordon Rendernick, where they've looked at time use, like how has time use changed during mm -hmm. the pandemic? And people who are lonely are coping with this very differently. And so we started having Zoom calls just where I was like, look, we're not going to talk work. I just want to know how you're doing. How is your family doing? And I feel like as a person in my position, um, I needed to do that for them, not necessarily for me, but it helped me too. I, it was good to hear from them. Like we're friends, you know, and I see them every day when we're in the lab and I, I miss seeing them. I didn't really realize I missed it. And so I think with research it's shifting now to think of how can we do things like this? Like instead of being in person to do an interview, can we do it over Zoom? Um, can we still see the person and collect data like that? Can, what things can we have police officers do that we don't have to be in person to do? Can we train them from afar to use the technology that we need to do? And, and I kind of think that these are going to be positives in the long run about how we use our time. Like maybe we don't always need to go into the office and take up space when we can stay at home and use another couple of hours to be more productive. Um, it's kind of what I think about, at least when it comes to writing. Thank you for those insights. You know, this uh, COVID calls really started as a way to, to share research ideas. But at one point, um, this is the end of the ninth week of doing these. And at one point, I thought, you know, I don't know if we need to do the live thing every day at five. I can record these and put them up as podcasts. And I tried that idea out on a couple of friends. And they said, are you crazy? This is, a, this is like, we don't listen every day, but we know it's there at five o'clock. It's a place 
And so maybe what we need to be thinking right now is not just about sharpening our research, research tools, but also broadening our, our community and broadening the supports that we have for the, for the research community. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls. And on Monday, I'll be talking with Ryan Ellis and Megan Finn about infrastructures and the internet. And you won't want to miss that discussion. And you can catch COVID calls every Monday through Friday, Monday, every day of the week, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. You can catch it on YouTube Live. And you can always catch it later if you miss the live broadcast uh, on soundcloud.com. Just look for the COVID calls podcast. Rashawn Ray and Sharona Pearl, thank you so much for helping me close out what's been a great week of conversations. I learned a lot from you both in this last hour. Thank you. Thank you so much. Everybody stay healthy and we'll talk to you on Monday.